Welcome from the workshop on information systems and economics. Today we're recording a podcast with Sunny Tambe about big data, online labor markets, and information systems as an academic field. Welcome to the show, Sunny. Thanks, Andre. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's good to、uh, see you here in Dublin.、Uh, likewise. So let's begin our conversation by、uh, talking a little bit about why we're here today. So can you tell us about the workshop on information systems and economics, and what are the key themes and what we've learned from the talks both today and yesterday? So the、uh, workshop for、uh, information systems and economics,、uh, wise as it's known,、uh, is a、uh, a workshop that brings together researchers who have、uh, broad interests. In how technology is changing the、uh, economy in different ways,、uh, a lot of common, a lot of、uh, popular themes this time around:、uh, the sharing economy kind of work you do,、um, also、uh, machine learning and its impact on how we think about uh, data uh, and prediction, and、uh, how we think about、um, uh, platform platform behavior and those kinds of things. So a, a, a lot of papers looking at some of the more recent phenomenon、uh, that we hear about in the press a lot,、um, and, and how we think about how technology is changing human capital, labor,、uh, and job prospects, and pretty much any. Economic outcome you can think of. Yeah,、uh, those are really interesting topics. So your specialty is thinking about the labor side of this, thinking about how technology interacts with the labor market. So,、uh, can you tell us a little bit about what the type of themes that your work concerns, and perhaps what you presented today?、Mm -hmm. Sure.、Um, so my、um, my interests are. Uh, both uh, in uh, how how technology affects the labor market, as well as how technology lets us、uh, changes in technology allow us measure allow us to measure、uh, at, at a more fine grain level what's happening、uh, in the labor market. So、uh, this time around, I had、uh, two papers at the conference. One、uh, with a number of co-authors is a project with、uh, LinkedIn, and in that project, we're looking at、uh, the human capital and、um, how different kinds of human capital matter for economic outcomes. So. LinkedIn, as we all know, collects very interesting data on、uh, the career paths of people, on the kind of education they have, on what employers they work for, and so we're using that platform, the data from that platform, to、uh, look at、uh, how firms differ in the kinds of workers they have and how that matters for various、uh, economic outcomes.、Uh, another project that、uh, I was can you can、oh, we just actually sure that's so fascinating.、Um, one of the unique things that you do is you do use this LinkedIn data. Uh, and can you tell us a little bit about the advantages of this data as opposed to other data that labor economists have used for many years, such as、uh, either survey data or administrative data from governments about people's earnings? Like, why why is the LinkedIn data、uh, so interesting and new relative to the other types of data? So there's there's a couple of dimensions up along which data like that really shine.、Uh, one of those is it connects the firm and the worker. Um, most administrative data sets that people have worked with have made it that that connection has been difficult. It's been hard, for example, to see、uh, look at a firm and see what kinds of workers are employed there. It's been hard to look at career paths in administrative data in, in administrative data sets and see what are the types of firms that people go to as they move from job to job. So by having firm and employee level data all in the same data set,、uh, that allows、um, us to ask some new questions. The other thing is that it's just a matter of granularity, where there are fields that、um, well, granularity at scale. So, for an enormous number of workers, you have relatively fine-grained information on things like where they went to school,、uh, what exact degree they got, and so you can start to ask questions that rely on granularity、um, at a scale where you can have statistical power as well. Got it. So, let's say you know where someone went to school, and we didn't have that type of data before. 
what can one do with that? So if you have information on um, on where one went to school, you could think about asking different questions in terms of how uh, where you went to where you go to school um, influences, say, um, the choices you make later on career-wise, um, networks that you build in school, for instance, how they might affect career choices later on, uh, the kind of education you get. Um, there are, of course, enormous debates going on right now about the value of higher education, uh, the, the financial piece of that in terms of grand student loans and things like that. And so understanding a little bit about how uh, your, your choices in terms of higher education affect uh, out, uh, your own outcome as well as the value you provide to the society as a whole, I think, uh, can, can inform some interesting uh, policy. Got it. And what has your experience been as far as uh, obtaining this data? So it seems like a very complicated data set and it's not available to the public. So what, what was the mechanism for that? So uh, the, in, in this particular case, I mean, I, I, think, I think companies differ a little bit in their, their orientations and in, in being able to work with academics and so on. And I think in, in, in most cases, um, companies are interested in working uh, with academics, but of course, companies themselves face some restrictions and in, in, in internally, and they are, they're sensitive to their own uh, their, their own goals. And so, uh, in, in this case, I think um, we we had a uh, a good relationship with some people there who seemed uh, interested in the similar types of questions, and so um, the the project. Um, uh, has, has sort of taken wing. Uh, but I think these are project-to-project uh, project type questions in a sense because, again, the firms um, uh, firms have their own incentives. Academics also want uh, to publish. And so it's, it's nice to be able to find common ground in terms of the questions you can ask. Yeah, that, that's a really, once again, I just want to emphasize to the audience how, how awesome this new data is and the fact that uh, there is a room for collaboration between the private sector and academia is, uh, is really unique. Um, now, can you tell us about the other paper you presented uh, today? Sure. The other paper, um, so a, a student of mine presented this uh, paper, and this was a paper on looking at uh, open source contribution through uh, GitHub, which, uh, for those of you who are not familiar, is a it's essentially a social network for code. Uh, it's a place that you can uh, contribute to open source projects. And we were interested in the question, we're interested in the question of how Essentially, uh, local labor market factors can affect things like contribution to uh, a digital commons like open source. So in this case, we're looking at how uh, time zones influence open source contributions. So uh, is it important to be co-located geographically to the corporation sponsoring the project? And if so, why? What's the mechanism there? Got it. So before you tell us what you find, why, why is that an important question and why did you uh, and what type of strategy do you use to try to attack it? So uh, it's an important question for, I think, a couple of reasons. Um, we, we care a lot about contribution to various sorts of digital, um, digital commons goods, right? Wikipedia, um, open source projects. Uh, in general, most of the literature in that area has focused on characteristics of the uh, contributors, but not sort of, hasn't connected it to sort of their offline the offline economics, you might say, in terms of the uh, what's the economy is doing. So it, it becomes it's it's it's, it, it's interesting, I think, to tr investigate how firms should think about um, managing some of these. Uh, since now, now that firms are very much involved in in sponsoring open source projects, sponsoring different types of digital common goods. Uh, there are a number of questions that one could ask as a manager. Um, how is the success of my project? How is that? Uh, how much is that influenced by, say, the city I'm in? 
Um, we, th we tend to these, think of these things as flat or boundaryless. But one of the things we find in this paper is that that may not actually be the case, that there is some kind of gravity, you might say, in terms of the management of these projects, that there are uh, some various mechanisms which might make it uh, might make you more dependent on people that are in your, in, in this case, in your own time zone. So one way to think about this project is trying to get at the mechanisms by which cities are still so important. You know, we, we see a lot of developers, especially the top quality ones that want to live in the Bay Area, uh, and that's really expensive. It's expensive because of the housing costs, and it's expensive for the companies to hire these people, and yet they still do so. Now, techno-optimists or have been saying for a long time that we can use something like telepresence technology and work together even if we're not in the same location. So uh, this is kind of a way to figure out whether what's driving this agglomeration. Yeah, definitely you could see this as a, uh, a, w another, uh, another way to investigate this, this point that you're bringing up, which is the, uh, the importance of uh, agglomeration economies in this uh, tech society we're living in. And somewhat counterintuitive, like you said, there's, there's been a lot of talk about the death of distance for a long time. Um, and we're seeing that in that cities are arguably becoming more important than ever. And so it's, it, it's, a, it, it's worth investigating why that, why that is the case. Okay, and so, so what do you find? So in this case, we find this is early work, and we're, so we're still uh, uh, looking at the mechanisms and so on. But we find that there is a uh, fairly strong effect uh, wherein it, it, the, when, you're, when you're a corporation that releases uh, an open source project or is managing an open source project, a uh, surprisingly large amount of contributions from developers out there who are contributing are based on uh, what not only what city you're in, but what, what time zone you're in. So because of the way... Uh, developers choose to spend their time perhaps off hours contributing to open source projects, it's easier for them to contribute to projects that are sponsored by firms in the same time zone. Uh, for example, it doesn't have to be the same city again, so we're looking you know, sort of vertically, vertically uh, across a number of cities. We see that you're more likely to contribute um, if you're in the same time zone than if you're three or four time zones away. So is the basic idea that you're just it's easier to communicate with the main project leaders and therefore you're like more likely to do it? That's a good question. We're still, uh, again, exploring the mechanism. I think that it's going to, uh, the, the ultimate story does, does have to do with um, something about the, the, the information flow between the, uh, the day work cycle of the people working on the project and the, the uh, off work cycle of the people who are contributing and how that kind of fits together. Got it. Okay, so this is all really fresh work, but you've already done a ton of work that's a lot of which has been published in great journals. So can you tell us more generally, what is your research agenda? And then maybe we can discuss a little bit about the specific mm -hmm. papers. So my, my research agenda up till now has been largely looking at the economics of tech labor and spe uh, specifically. So looking at, uh, as, as I think many of us um, read uh, daily or, or very frequently at least, a lot of firms are spending a lot of time thinking about the question of how to uh, manage tech workers, how to acquire tech workers. It's becoming increasingly important from the standpoint of a firm who's trying to compete in a digital economy. And so I've been looking at a number of questions around uh, the importance of the flow of these workers uh, from firm to firm, uh, how you compensate these workers, how you screen for these workers, uh, what their impact is on various business functions. Okay. And so uh, what have you found? So um, a number of different topics in that area. Uh, so we brought up agglomeration economies before. So. One of the things these data, by the way, so you brought this question up earlier about what the data can tell you. Uh, 
even things like firm-to-firm transitions, which are, of course, very fundamental to sort of job markets and how they work, are sometimes difficult to get out with administrative data sets. So we have one paper that looks at um, the, the flow of workers in, um, in the tech economy and basically finds that uh, firms that are embedded in, in – uh, so, so specialization in markets – uh, if, if a firm is in a market where um, they are sort of embedded in a deep network of other uh, firms in terms of the mo- mobility of workers, um, they basically get more out of their technological investments, right? So they're they're usually farther ahead on the uh, tech productivity curve than um, than firms I've decided to, to decided to locate uh, elsewhere. But isn't that decision of where to locate in some sense related? To how important that technology is to the firm. So how do you get around that? Uh, it is. Um, it is. This, these are these are strategic decisions, right? And these uh, location choices are endogenous as well. And so, uh, what you see is that you have firms for th- that have made the decision that the technology is very important to them. They tend to choose to. Uh, it is costly to be in these areas, right? It is, is costly for sure, uh, from a rent standpoint, from a worker retention standpoint. And they've made the trade-off and basically decided that it is worth being in these markets because of specialization, because of specialization reasons. But I guess, does your work suggest that these firms are making the right decision and just selecting appropriately, or is there something that firms have missed by not locating uh, in the tech-heavy area? Yeah, I, I don't think I, I don't think so. I, I, we, we don't go that far. I think firms face different costs and benefits from investing in these technologies, and they know what those are, right? And some firms know, based on their internal organization, uh, various adjustment costs, what they can get out of these new technologies, and they may, they have made, may have made these decisions, you know, to the best that they're able, given what they know about their firms. Okay, and and just to clarify, I guess you were you were saying technology in general, but is there a specific technology that you're thinking about in this case? Uh, we have uh, there's one paper that I've worked on that looks at the spread. Just because of the timing, I was looking at the spread of some of the infrastructure that's used for big data analytics, uh, particularly Hadoop and a few of the companion technologies. Got it. And so, so how do we think about the spread of Hadoop? Were these firms that happen to be uh, located close to the firm that created Hadoop, where they, they got the benefits of Hadoop, whereas the rest of the world did not for a I, while? I think that's one of the interesting things about Hadoop relative to, say, uh, the Internet. This is somewhat anecdotal, but uh, you know, I, I think Hadoop was was rooted in a corporation or corporate background, whereas things like the Internet had a lot of university funding behind it. And so you see uh, potentially different geographic patterns of diffusion with Hadoop. That what that paper basically argues is that you have uh, there are a lot of benefits from there's a very small cluster of firms uh, that in 2006, seven, eight uh, were driving the development of this technology and the initial cadre of engineers who could work with those technologies were basically circulating among those firms and so it was just uh, a lot of concentration in that area. And is there any evidence that the workers got additional rents like that they happen to get this right set of skills? Do we know anything about what happened to them? We don't, unfortunately, have wage data. We can't tell sort of. We can't separate um, the uh, uh, how the workers fare. Uh, we can look at uh, certain things. Certainly, other data sources could be looked at, but at least in that one, unfortunately, we could not. Got it. I, I would even think that without the wage data, the job title data is very informative about the wages that people get. So yeah. that would have been. A cool addition. Yeah, Yeah, um, you certainly could have tied the job title. The job titles themselves are a little tricky to work with because you have to match them then to what the OES or occupational government administrative data have. And sometimes that matches, uh, especially with these new job titles, can be a little bit noisy because the government data are relatively coarse when it comes to the number of possibilities. Um, But you can certainly see some changes. And one of the things that strikes me is that as a firm, you can invest in 
training your workers for a new technology, but you don't capture all the benefits of that training because, of course, the workers can leave. And so you've done some work on this. So can you tell us about that? Um, I, I have, and so that's right. the, the one of the one of the unique properties I would say of technical skills. Not not totally unique to technical skills, but. Um, certainly a str stronger for technical skills is how transferable they are. And to your point, that suggests that if our firms are going to spend the money to train these workers, they may not be able to capture uh, the benefits. So we have some work that looks at, uh, essentially, we're trying to make the case here where, where workers that workers that are, uh, that join, a lot, of them, a lot of times they join firms to learn these technical skills. A lot of firms are well known in terms of employer brands as being good places to learn, uh, data science, for instance. And, and oftentimes, workers essentially uh, finance their own skills in the sense that they are uh, paid, um, perhaps uh, in a way that's commensurate with the idea that they're also acquiring human capital. So they're partly paid in human capital is one way to think about that. Yeah, this is a much broader uh, tendency in the economy. For example, medical interns are paid very little money, but part of that is because they're uh, getting a lot of training. But still, even if part of your wage is taken in, in terms of human capital, there are these externalities, and the firms in equilibrium will undertrain their workers because they, they are, there is a chance that they will lose them. Yeah. Um, so is, do, you, do you think that this is a big problem for the economy? Do we generally think that there's not enough training going on, or is, or is this something that is a curiosity but not empirically important? The reason I think it is empirically important is because it has implications for uh, the technology investment decision, right? So if we think that workers are essentially financing their own skills or getting paid in human capital, a critical part of the value of that human capital depends on, depends on the ability to transfer it. And so when we think about things like non-compete agreements, which might restrict the worker's ability to move from to another firm, that can have implications for that kind of financing, which then in turn might have implications for the firm's decision to uh, invest in technologies earlier, perhaps, than they might have otherwise. Interesting. And in, in, do you think that there is a role for policy in, in this? So you mentioned the non-compete agreements, but should firms be subsidized for training, or is it, has anyone tried tried to do this? That is a good question. I, I believe there are there is very there there are differences across uh, country boundaries. So, uh, for example, it's my understanding that um, there is some support in uh, some of the Scandinavian countries, for instance, for tech workers who want to relearn or train themselves on new skills. Um, I don't know about the outcomes there. I don't know how they compare to others, but there is some. There might there are some interesting differences that could be examined there. Now, I guess I, I want to move to a little more speculative questions. So one of the things that we've seen is that technology is becoming a more and more important part of the economy. And commensurate with that, we see an increase in a lot of these boot camps for, for coding and in general people learning computer science. Do you think that the labor market is going to be able to absorb all those people. What's likely to happen is almost uh, everyone, or not almost everyone, but at least a large share of the working population will start to learn how to code. So let me uh, take the first question first, which is related to boot camps. And I think it's a great question. And part of the challenge is we just have so little data on the outcomes of people who've gone to these, uh, these boot camps. I think one of the concerns that is uh, pervasive right now is trying to to separate what you learn at a boot camp from what you get at a, a four-year computer science uh, education. We've we, we've gone through sort of these boom and bust cycles before uh, in, in, in the late 90s and then, of course, 2001. 
and we had a lot of offshoring after that. And there was the concern then that there was a layer of workers who had made the, the, the longer investment that might be more vulnerable. And so one wonders exactly what the differences are here and whether um, the kinds of skills that you miss in a boot camp relative to a four-year degree make you more vulnerable. I don't think we know the answers. I think they're interesting questions, but I think that there are some uh, some very important differences between the uh, those two modes of education, and uh, the jury is still out a little bit on how important those differences are. And so, just for the audience, in case they don't know, the the, the difference is that in the computer science bachelors, for example, at a good university, you're going to learn a lot of math, you're going to learn about formal algorithms and how to think through things theoretically, whereas in the boot camp, you're pretty much uh, given uh, a set of exercises regarding the programming languages that are uh, in demand right now, and you, you kind of execute on them and learn them, but you maybe don't get a deep sense for how programming works. That, that, is that kind of right, a good summary? That's a, great, that's a great summary. Got it. So continuing on with that question then, what do, what do we think is going to happen economy-wide uh, as these skills become both more in demand and more in supply? What, what do you think is going to win out? So I, I think when we think about people learning to code, I do think it is valuable to learn how to think computationally, you might say. So I'm a little bit of a skeptic when it comes to does everyone need to learn how to code? I think we're getting to uh, moving to a point where a lot of what we think about needing to code, a lot of some of that's going to be packaged into software, where you can essentially um, make it, it makes it very user friendly to do algorithmic things. It is, however, important to um, learn some computational thinking. I think that is value added for everyone to be able to do. Um, but in, in terms of programming, uh, I, I think we might be uh, the pendulum might, might swing a little bit too far uh, in base in in, in in the amount of uh, programming education we, we give. Interesting. And I guess one thing related to that, since uh, I, I think you may be the first person uh, on the program that is a professor of information systems, uh, so you teach uh, undergraduates and, and graduate students in a field that is related to computer science but different. So can you tell us a little bit about, about this field? What are what are the unique uh, components of an in information systems uh, degree? So an information systems degree is a little bit different in that it tends to live inside uh, a business school. It's uh, technical in nature, but unlike a computer science degree, it's going to look at uh, what you might call the intersection of technology and business. So you're not going to get uh, necessarily some of the algorithmic uh, types of courses that you were mentioning earlier or the higher order math, but you're, you may have some courses that are a bit more applied to a business domain, uh, likely to uh, learn how to use some tech skills and tech tools as well. So it's a little bit of a hybrid of both. Uh, right now, it's, it's, a, it's a slightly different, different um, set of jobs than you might look for leaving a computer science degree. So there are a number of employers that are looking for people who are well-versed in business domains like energy or luxury marketing or finance, who want people to be well-trained in tech skills, but much of their job requires understanding the domain deeply, and it seems to be a pretty good fit for that. Yeah, that's, that's, that seems like a great niche to, to be in, I mean, if there's a lot of demand for it. Okay, so um, we've heard about your research, what, what you've done, and about the field of information systems. So the last thing that I want to ask you is, wh what do you think are the exciting areas going forward, and what are the big unanswered questions? 
So I think, uh, I'm a little biased here, but I think uh, some of the questions, I, I tend to think about things through a labor human capital lens, but the given how quickly various uh, industries are changing, I think um, there, there's, there's a lot that we just don't know in terms of what's, what's coming. So you said research questions or questions in general? I think research questions, okay. yeah. So uh, my interests uh, go in a couple of different directions. I think um, uh, from a technology standpoint, one of the things, it's worth revisiting some of the older questions to think about. Uh, uh, so, so for instance, we know quite a bit about technology and its impact on firms. We don't know a lot about the dynamic aspect of that. We don't know, for instance, how it interacts with things like financial cycles and things like that, right? So I think there's a lot of uh, room to make contribution there, thinking about how various aspects of uh, corporate finance and so on impact the firm's technology decision, how business cycles impact that. Uh, and then, of course, the intersection between that and, and, and labor for me is very exciting. So how firms think about adjusting labor for the labor force. And given how quickly the economy is changing in terms of the skill base of what we need, uh, some of the changes that firms are making and its implications for things like uh, inequality and so on, those are pretty exciting too. Yeah, I mean, these questions have been around for a while, but technology is moving forward. Yeah. So they still need to be studied because uh, they can have a really big effect. Um, so actually one thing that I do want to hear your opinion on is uh, what do we think the effect of AI is going to be on the labor market? I mean, I realize this, this is, of course, the topic of much speculation by everyone, but you as, as an expert in the field, maybe you have a different perspective. It's a great question. I'm, uh, I'm of the personal view that um, some people think it's overblown, that there's a lot of hype. I do think it is a... Uh, uh, it has the potential to have a very disruptive effect on how we think about uh, jobs over the... I don't know what the time cycle is, and I think as academics, uh, we're relatively good at seeing what's coming, but not so good at the time cycle. It's a little bit hard to predict sometime, uh, sometimes. But I think that, um, in, in at least the medium term, there is potential for some of the uh, things we're seeing to have a... Uh, relatively uh, important effect on, on, on a number of jobs. And I, I think that's an open question as to the, exactly the shape that uh, that uh, AI is going to... We've, we've been wrong about this before, right? There was a lot of excitement around AI sort of in the late 90s and so on. It, it ended up panning out a slightly different way in terms of its capabilities and things like that. And so I think that um, it's still an open question, but I think it's definitely worthy of the investigation that it's going to get over the next five years. Yeah, super interesting. I'm also excited in seeing what happens. Well, uh, thanks so much for being on the show. This was a really great conversation. All right. Thank you for having me.